Black Cats Run podcast. I'm Tristan Black Ingersoll, and this is Black Cats Run. Today's episode, I'm going to talk specifically about the concept of overtraining. I want to try to articulate and offer some perspective or interpretation as why I believe that probably the overwhelming majority of us are overtrained, are constantly overtraining, and the culture of our sports push us into that approach. And that by identifying the ways in which overtraining is actually being done, we can seek to modify and reevaluate our approaches, our mindset about what we're trying to do, and start to experience much better, uh, i.e., more positive, more rewarding outcomes. Let's get into today's episode. It's very frustrating to put a lot of time and energy into anything and have the expectation, especially, that that time and energy is going to be specifically rewarded with a you know measurable outcome. And oftentimes, we're putting efforts into trying to achieve things that we feel, um, you know, regardless of the fact that it's a socially constructed form of personal validation, things that we feel are meaningful within society or culture. And it's because those are um, defined achievements or possibilities that we have constructed within our social spaces as being meaningful and important. And sport definitely fits into that category. And you know, the pursuit of that you know, can cause us to really focus in on the example of people that we deem to be um, at a higher level than us or, you know, achieving, you know, and that also has the effect that uh, we tend to filter out the inputs or the experiences or the data of other people who are not um, as empirically high achieving. That has led to the assumption that there's some sort of correlation between performance and knowledge, performance and competence, um, you know, performance and the ability to teach. And we certainly in America, not everybody, but there is a, a pervasively derogatory, you know, attitude towards um, people who, uh, you know, do teaching. And um, people will say that, you know, those who can't do teach. And, you know, we tend to elevate and celebrate people who achieve and we want to hear what they have to say um, about their experience and about their process and how do they get from point A to point B and we think that's uh, that's the gold mine we're going to go and we're going to find this stuff and as you start to learn more about any particular pursuit any particular aspiration and as you start to listen to people who are highly achieving in those areas um, eventually I think that anybody is going to reach the threshold of perspective where you're going to recognize that these people don't actually have anything in particular to offer and actually that they're sometimes shockingly uh, oblivious to this stuff. Um, and, you know, one area where I feel I continue to see this, um, you know, more and more, and if you've listened to a lot of this, our episodes on Black Cats Run, um, you know, exploring uh, and trying to break down and then, you know, build into a better understanding of the concept of 
lactate threshold has been something that's been of great interest to me. And, um, you know, as my knowledge about that has improved and expanded, um, you know, you start to look at the practices of other people and you start to recognize that, you know, they, they really don't understand what they're doing. I saw um, a YouTube or an Instagram thing from a runner, Allie Ostrander. I don't know if that's how you say her name, but she had done a lactate test for running and it was some 1200 meter repeats that were progressive and um, had arrived at the conclusion that um, her lactate threshold was 530 pace. And then she, you know, showed the graph, and in the graph, um, six-minute pace was like the la- I think the last velocity at which the lactate um, was steady, and then after that point, it started to accumulate. And so, right, if we look at that kind of stuff, right, it is going to always create this anxiety. Um, I mean, maybe that's a little hyperbolic, right? Maybe we're not all going to experience this, but I think it can easily feed into an anxiety that well, we're not doing um, it in that way, right? Like in this, if you've followed along, again, with what we've talked about on um, our episodes related to that topic of lactate threshold, I, that is not lactate threshold. Um, but right, if you, we see people who are more highly achieving or more visible and more recognized, um, and we see this stuff, it, that can really cast in um, you know, doubt into what we're doing or you know, some of the stuff that, uh, Lionel Sanders has posted um, some YouTube stuff about testing and trying to establish lactate uh, threshold values um, using this uh, method that is not, you know, physiologically based. It's just like a graphical mathematical thing. It's not, you know, in, uh, training intensities and thresholds need, if you're going to do it from sort of a you can do this from like a data valuation standpoint where you like track a bunch of training data um, over time and you look at, you know, what sorts of practices correlate with performance, right? Look at real world data. Um, or if you're trying to sort of do this by more of a um, systems perspective of like, well, what is being engaged? And you really need to make sure you're understanding the systems and that your interpretation is tied back to that. And one of the things I had predicted um, on the podcast going back to the beginning of last year is I uh, felt that there would be a, you know, stampede of interest in lactate over, you know, the coming year or so. And then as people tried to engage it and measure it, um, that there would be all over the place in terms of what they're identifying. And like, for example, people um, posting, uh, you know, stuff on line where they're showing like, oh, here's my peak lactate value. And I think it's, it's interesting, right? It's interesting to learn things and see how these physiological markers are happening. What's your max heart rate, you know, stuff like that. But it doesn't matter. It's not meaningful. Uh, you know, and if anything, I would interpret people who have really high, uh, lactate values as, you know, peak lactate accumulation values as being people who have a significant amount of untapped aerobic potential. Because I put forward the the suggestion that if lactate should be seen as a preferred fuel or a preferred metabolite. And so if you have a lot of accumulated lactate, it's just sitting in your 
blood and you're not making use of that. And um, when we look at this stuff, right, so if we're not interpreting this stuff correctly, right, you can take and say, oh, training at lactate threshold, clearly that's, I like this idea, it sounds really beneficial, um, blah, 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 you know, right? You can have your rationalizations all lined up in terms of why you want to do it. And then if you don't go and um, implement that correctly, then you're going to get like a false measure of the impact of doing this. And so when you're seeing um, people represent this stuff in this way and making these interpretations, um, and to be clear, I, I think genuinely in no way are they obligated to represent or share any more of what they're doing than they would like to represent. But we also want to be mindful, right, that we're not always seeing the totality of what they're doing, right, in terms of training practice, right? So they might say, oh, I've identified my threshold as this, and then I'm going to do threshold workouts like that, okay? But then you, I would really want to know, you know, if I really wanted to, you know, learn more meaningfully what was going on, um, you know, not to be intrusive into people's, you know, training any more than, you know, they want to share, right? But just for the sake of the concept, right, we would want to really know, well, in practice, what are you actually doing, right? Are you actually, like, really hitting consistently that lactate number you targeted? Are you doing this based off of velocity? Um, how, are you, how are you doing this? How are you rationalizing this? Because I think there's effect, an effect where a lot of times people rationalize back to their original point. Um, I was uh, looking at when I got, let's rewind on here to give some context. When I got uh, had COVID for a couple of weeks, I really couldn't uh, exercise a lot um, because it was just very unpleasant and unenjoyable. Um, so I reduced my amount of exercise because it's like, oh, this just isn't really rewarding and I can't really do, I'm not really able to run uh, quickly enough to get, or, you know, ride quickly enough to get, um, the kind of benefits. So I'm just going to kind of wait this out. And, you know, I gained a few pounds as a consequence because I significantly reduced, you know, my <laughs> metabolic um, activity, right, from reducing my exercise activity so much. And, you know, so with my stride pod, I was like, oh, I guess maybe I should change the weight on the stride pod um, to get the, you know, the power I'm doing, right? Because on a bicycle power meter, you don't need to do that. But because stride pod, it's doing this stuff um, with, you know, some accelerometers, um, you have to input the weight if you want the power for your weight. So then I was looking up online, I was like, because when you go to do that, StridePod sort of says, oh, don't change this, right? It's not good to change this. There's this prompt. Are you sure you want to change it? So I was like, man, I thought I was sure, but now you're making me question myself. So I, um, you know, looked this up and, you know, this is just your example of like stuff you find online, um, on the first page of Google results, right? But I'm just was looking to see well, what what comes up if I see this. Are there other people's thoughts or perspectives on this? And you know, there's a lot of stuff that said no. You don't want to ever change your weight, no matter what. Keep your weight the same, and because you because then you can't compare uh, your power to past workouts. And I thought, okay, but I'm not really using this because I want to compare to past workouts. I'm using this because. I want to manage my intensity in my workouts correctly. And then, uh, you know, there was something where somebody had referenced Steve Palladino, who was a, you know, former Olympic marathon trials runner or something, but maybe like a 214 or 216. And it's like, well, Steve Palladino has clearly articulated. So I 
said, well, let me see what this is. I want to he- hear this. I'm curious. And um, I found a you know big document. Well, big for considering that you're talking about the question of should you update your weight on your stride pod, right? So, but several pages, you know, written out, um, explaining at great length, you know, why Steve Pavladinos doesn't think you should change that. And he's really bad to do that. And he says some people, you know, one effective solution is just set your weight to 100 kilograms because then the number on, on your watch will always be you know, adjusted for two decimal places will always be your power to weight. You should really, we're training, trying to train based on your power to weight ratio. And it's like, okay, right? If you're just tra- power to weight, that dictates your, that's how you determine velocity, right? So like cycling, for example, if you're more used to thinking about power to weight and cycling, cycling, when you're going uphill, your power to weight ratio, that is going to determine your velocity, um, where your wattage is a reflection of the amount of work that you do. So if I woke up the next day and I lost lost or gained, doesn't matter which, but I lost or gained 40 pounds, right? And then I went out and said, well, I, but nothing else had changed, right? I had just lost this weight and my physiological capacity to produce, um, you know, lactate threshold at X watts is the same. And then I said, well, I don't need to update my weight. I'm just going to train according to my um, inputted my originally inputted weight, that's not effective, you know, because then all you're doing is you're just taking the stride pod and you're just rationalizing back to training by velocity where the only thing you've accommodated for is you're basically saying, well, when I go up or downhill, right, what's the uh, equivalent intensity of doing the velocity on the flat? And so, you know, you want to update your weight on your stride pod because your, you know, lactate threshold is is something that we can correlate towards um, your power, right? And as you just because you lose or gain weight, and I'm sure a lot of people have experienced this. I've certainly experienced this. You can lose or gain weight, and your power uh, to weight ratio changes because you've lost weight. Maybe, right? You're getting faster because you've lost weight, but you might not actually be able to produce any more power than you could before, right? So that's an example in my mind of, you know, people rationalizing back to their original way of thinking. And I think it's an interesting intellectual trap that we fall into a lot more than we maybe realize. But if we're cognizant of it, Right. Maybe it's possible to kind of like, you know, move through a different direction in that regard. And I think this is why when you look at this sort of cluttering of information, whether it's looking at different people present ideas about, well, I think, you know, lactate threshold is this and I'm a person of authority or status in the community. Now, they're not doing that in that way. They're not saying, um, oh, I'm a person of authority or status in this athletic community. So I'm going to circulate this thing. Um, they're just, you know, representing their thinking. Um, and I think, so rather than look at this and say, this person is wrong and, you know, I'm right and make it a, a competitive thing. I think what's meaningful is to look at different people's experiences and recognize how it's reflective of the fact that we lack a common understanding of this. And I think it's reflective of the fact that people like ultimately need to rationalize their way back to these, um, you know, I need to be working um, X amount of hard in my training. And I think that, you know, this stuff makes it frustrating for people. 
um, because when you hear a lot of ideas or advice um, or get a sense of new possibilities about or in training, um, you know, we might get to the point where it's like, oh, I get it. You know, how can I do it? Right. Um, and then we look at the, you know, people, we try to look for examples, right. Looking at a work product, like as a teacher, one of the things I, you know, try to always remind myself of is that, you know, giving people a, um, exemplar, a work product, um, to look at is sometimes the most valuable thing in getting people to the point where they can produce that work product, right. And that they don't ultimately, uh, copy that work product, but they look at that and then they learn from that and they go to that example. And then as they get better at that, they start to recognize the deep structure, the deep nature of the, the, the problem or the task that they're trying to do. And they're able to start creating their own, you know, um, stuff to that. Right. But if we don't have those examples of what we can do, it's difficult to make the connection between what we understand to be true and how do we bring this and make this happen in practice? And that goes back to what I had talked about um, when I had originally started these a series of episodes talking about the concept of fatigue and uh, you know overtraining overall is this idea of this disconnect between theory and practice, that theory and practice are different things, that you know there's this bias that practice is more valid. And that theory is more abstract. So I think for a lot of people, that could maybe mean that you would listen to this podcast and you would maybe interpret this podcast as being a you know theory-based thing, which I don't think that's the case. But I can totally understand how from an audience perspective that might seem to be true. Then you can look at the sort of actual um, you know high-performer athletes, which I don't make claim to personally being a high-performer. Um, you know, in terms of when we look at this stuff on the scale of what, you know, um, world-class performances are, um, I would not make claim to that. Um, but then we look at these people right over there and we say, well, that's in practice, right? So you might say, well, okay, so BCR is telling me that, you know, lactate threshold is this, but then, you know, this person is going above that and this person is going above that. And so then we say, okay, well, so, we feel that there's this, you know, conflicted sense of how do I implement this? And I think that resolving this tension of theory and practice in our mind is really critical because that's not what we're trying to figure out, right? We're not trying to pick and choose this sort of partisan dynamic um, apart to, to determine what's valuable and, and prove that one one is good or the other is good. And I think people look at it from this sort of like, um, you know, tribalist uh, mindset, if you will, if that's the right term to use there to describe it, but like people like put themselves in one camp or the other. And um, I don't situate in that regard, but we can filter this stuff through again, right? Rationalizing back to our preconceived notion, right? So whereas instead, I would suggest that we look at this from the perspective of like, okay, how can I get to the point where I can make sense of these ideas in terms of what do I want to try to do, right, to make that happen, right? And I think what I'm talking about is the concept of strategy, right? Whereas some people say there's theory and practice, I don't think there are these two things. I think there's strategy, right? And I think strategy is, you can probably articulate this in different ways, but I think that um, strategy 
in one frame of reference is to think of like the practice of ideas, right? So that everything we do is driven by our ideas or our concepts, right? Whether we maybe are aware of that or not, our attitudes and our dispositions are what feed into our behavior, right? They drive our behavior. So in that sense, right, when we're looking at this stuff um, about training, right, and we're trying to make decisions about what to do, we're developing a strategy, right? And that um, the reality is when you look at the practices of, you know, high-performing, um, world-class or sub-elite, whatever type athletes or higher social profile athletes, um, that is the same that's a, just a different version of, say, for example, listening to this podcast and say, oh, I really, maybe I like this idea. I want to try to bring that into practice. You're not any more advantaged um, in terms of your ability to do things in practice than, you know, from looking at um, those, exam- those exemplars than you are maybe from listening to these ideas, right? And I think if we divide this into two camps, I think that the two problems here are basically the lack of autonomy, which I think is commonly experienced, for example, by people in regulated sporting environments. So if you're a uh, scholastic athlete, right, and if you're like a high school athlete, or if you're a collegiate athlete, right, you're in an environment where there's a certain level of expectation of like conformity. Um, to the coach, right? And that it's sort of like the coach has a lot of authority and influence there, probably more so maybe in in college perhaps than high school, although I'm sure it varies in terms of different sport cultures around um, with, you know, high school age athletes. Maybe some coaches have a lot of authority in terms of like who stays and who goes. Um, But basically, right, this sense of, well, I have to sort of conform to or do what the coach is telling me to do. Um, you know, one of the things that a senior on the cross country team at Bates when I was a freshman, he told me uh, he was the best runner on the team. Very nice guy. Uh, and uh, but one of his suggestions to me and reality is this might have been a throwaway comment to him. Um, but, you know, it, it stuck with me as an interesting observation. Um, he said, do you know, a lot of guys don't want to do what coach says. Do if you do everything coach says the way he says it you know you'll have success and I think that's a mindset that we see too right where like uh you know it's not don't question what you're doing you just need to do what is put in front of you and it's that you're if you execute what is presented to you properly you will get results and if you're not getting results well what's the only explanation then well you're just not doing what's presented to you correctly and you know I think that kind of you know, concept ironically uh, encouraged this kind of conformity view, right? So if we just talk about the the lack of autonomy people first, and then, you know, I think the other group would be people who have total autonomy. And you can also struggle when you have, when you have autonomy, right? So it's not just this idea of, oh, once I get out from under coach or whatever, I can be liberated and I'll get good. Most people actually can decline dramatically because, when they're not in that structure, like so for runners who run in high school and college and might be very good, they get out of that structure um, and they don't have any sort of like schedule or routine about like, okay, I just need to be here at this time. And it's like 
they have that autonomy. They, they don't know what to do. And that's basically the end of their experience with running. And it's not that they don't maybe still enjoy the sport or would like to still uh, be fit and, and be competitive and maybe try to see if they can get even faster or whatever the case may be. They just don't know how to be autonomous, right? So that's also the struggle, right? So um, I think we want the ability to be able uh, to do what we want in terms of what we feel that we need to be able to try or implement, but then we lack the practice in implementing it. So like we don't know how to implement it. Like we're not given the opportunity to figure out how do I apply a strategy to this situation or this problem. Uh, It's just not something we're familiar with um, because a lot of coaches aren't encouraging that because I think a lot of coaches struggle with this need for control and that a part of what can feel good about being a coach is this idea that like you are getting to like direct this thing. Um, And, you know, I like hate personally that puppeteering type syndrome, but it's something that you see a lot where it's this sense of like, oh yeah, I told so-and-so this and then they went out and did that. And like, that's what people are finding gratifying is this, this idea of which they're directly prompting you know, the end, mo- you know, and motivating and that the idea that they can like say that they have this power of speech to like directly, you know, uh, impact people's behavior or elevate them to whatever their definition of desirable behavior is within that context. And the problem with that is that like you're not actually empowering these people. Um, like in my case, actually, one of my biggest regrets has been watching athletes that I coached at some point in the past, um, who've moved on to run in college or have, you know, in other contexts, you know, moved off, um, to different, you know, domains or, you know, approaches to the sport. Um, you know, whether that, you know, was a conscious decision to just sort of like move away from that, you know, okay, I'm seeking out input from this person or whether it was just like a breakdown in relationship because a lot of people just don't, um, that process of communicating, right, isn't a skill that we have when we're so used to environments where, well, I don't, the coach will just show up and tell me what to do and tell me what to do. And, you know, with adult athletes, it's like, I'm not going to do that. You know, first of all, I'm not inclined to do that because I have my own things going on. Um, and it's also like, I'm going to respect your space, you know, as a person, as a, as a fellow, fellow adult person, right? You're going to do um, what you're going to want to do. And if you don't want, part of that is you don't want to continue to communicate, then that's a, a decision you make, right? And I think sometimes people get in these holes and they don't really understand what they're doing because we've learned of coaching. But the reason why the coach is there and communicates to you when you're a scholastic athlete or whatever um, is because like you have this routine where you show up at a certain time, you know, every day or X number of times a week or a month. And then that's a practice. And then in that context, it's, you know, the coach is communicating, right? And so you have that, right? But when you get away from that organized structure and pattern of like, this is when, you know, coach and the athlete the or the team and the coach are meeting and, and interacting and going through a session, then that communication isn't present anymore. So as a coach, I think you want to try to teach people how to, you know, do this, right? Um, and I think a lot of coaches don't. And it's not easy to teach because if you're teaching that, you're teaching against 
the current, right? Which the current is like trying to condition athletes to, you know, be receptive and not question what the coach, what the coach says, right? Which is this traditional idea of coaching efficiency. And, you know, one of the things that I've um, tried to do is I try, I've tried to think about in terms of like, what are the sort of pieces that empower that autonomy that I would want athletes to take away, right? And one of my things that I find gratifying is when I do see examples of people that, you know, I maybe have worked with for some period of time and I see them continue to be successful and I see them, um, that is great because it shows that like the time we spent working together, you know, actually had transferable value to them because they're then taking things and they have shown showing growth, right? Because they can do this themselves. And so I think a, a hit list of some of these priority things are people recognizing strategically, right? What are these strategic design principles? Consistency, aerobic intensity, volume, longer sessions, lifestyle balance, and also like being strategic versus being reactionary. You know, but these are conceptual understandings, right? And so you could say, well, these are theory and how do we put these into practice, right? Because like, um, actually this, the Boston Celtics basketball coach, here's a fun random connection, has been getting a ton of criticism um, over the last year and a half or so for not calling timeouts when people like, when people's basketball watching brains expect there to be a timeout, you know, based on what they're seeing happening in the competition. And he has said that, well, I want guys to figure it out. And I think, and I'm interpreting, but I think a lot of that probably has to do with an idea of like building resiliency, right? That like, you know, I can't just keep coming in and bailing you out, you know, or or hitting the pause button in the video game, you know, and then, you know, in some way, shape or form, try to intervene with your thought process, right? Because if I continue to do that, you know, then what happens if I can't call a timeout or something like that, right? There's not going to be personal growth. And I think that that reaction to that, you know, reflects the idea, this conventional idea that people don't look at sports as being this thing where higher levels of achievement come from, you know, engaging people's ability to be autonomous, right? Because as a coach, like what I wanted is I wanted athletes to show up for the fall and cross country to be and be in great shape. You know, as a coach, what I want is I want athletes whom in the times when I'm not maybe like, you know, meeting them every day for practice or meeting them for a training session, or in some cases, like literally training with them every day, I want them to be able to continue to engage with this stuff in the right way, right? And by the right way, we mean what's going to be both effective for training. We mean also it's going to be positive and rewarding and enjoyable, okay, in terms of an an experience. So if you lack autonomy, some people feel like, well, you can't really do these things in that environment. And so people like, well, what's the point, right? It's not useful. I can't do this. And that's not correct. Okay. So I've been in these environments um, as an athlete. And, you know, I know that you have a lot more space to be making choices and you do have to make a lot of choices. So, you're a runner the majority of the running time you spend is not in structured workouts you know on the track or you know around a golf course or whatever right the majority of it is just spent out going for runs okay so like you don't have to run at the max velocity i always for example 
in, in high school and, and, um, you know, for the first part of college, uh, would just tended to just run by default with whomever the quote unquote fastest or fittest people on the team were this, at least the people who were having the best, uh, race results. Um, you know, I don't, there was no thought process to that per se. Um, you know, I just sort of went and those were people I was already friends or friendly with. And so I just kind of went out and we went running and I liked to run and I liked, you know, I didn't want to go out and, and dub around. Um, I enjoyed, you know, being able to feel like I was moving along a little bit more, whatever, however you want to describe that. Um, and then I would we'd go to the workouts and I was totally cooked um, because, you know, I was probably running basically at or over my lactate threshold all of the time. And, you know, I'm sure if I had been able to take those workouts and turn those into easy days, I probably would have felt way better. Right. But instead it was, I'm already, I'm making this decision about, um, what I'm going to do during those running sessions. And a lot of times when I would have the runs where I'd be running by myself, I would actually run even faster. Um, you know, which isn't to say that I was out doing runs at five minute pace or something that people might think objectively is really cool or impressive, but comparatively, right, I would just go out and I would just keep trying to get into that that feeling of of um, like I feel I'm challenging myself and I feel really competent, but I feel really competent with this challenge, right? Which is like a very rewarding thing for your brain, and I would just constantly try to find that state. Um, because that's what I felt was the most beneficial and effective. Those are choices that I, I made, right? Um, and I don't say that in a in a necessarily critical or or praising way. It just a, a objectively, right? Those are objectively those are choices, and you know things that you can do in that space is you can approach that differently, right? So like you can manage, you can choose to manage your intensity. You can go easier. Right. You can use a heart rate monitor. Right. And say, I'm going to keep my heart rate monitor below X. Right. You can go out and you can do a test. Right. Using your heart rate monitor. And then you can. So, for example, right. You can go out and say, well, I'm going to do a 30 minute test and try to go pretty fast or pretty hard for 30 minutes. And it could be in another sport besides running. I'm going to look at my heart rate. Okay. And you say, all right, now when I'm on these runs, I'm gonna, my heart rate needs to be 20 beats less, maybe, right, than it was in that 30-minute test. So if you're a runner and you did a 10,000-meter time trial on, on the road, on a road course you like uh, for running by yourself, and your heart rate was 180, right, and you say, okay, I'm, when I'm training, I'm going to keep my heart rate below uh, 160, or you might even say below 150, right, Right? But you find that heart rate where it's like, okay, I know when I'm below this heart rate, it's easy. I know when I go for a runs when my heart rate is below blank, right? I'm not going to be tired. You can do the same thing with power on the bike, right? I'm going to keep below, you know, this, right? The power is much better than the heart rate because there's other things that can affect heart rate. But if you're using heart rate um, to stay easy and trying to stay below a particular heart rate, uh, I think that that can be pretty good. If you're trying to use heart rate to like, find this particular like bracketed intensity, I think that can be tricky because as I've talked about in other episodes, there's so many variables that can influence that heart rate. So, you know, uh, and it can also be when you do workouts as a team, right? Like don't push yourself. If you have the opportunity to go in a slower group or go at a slower place, pace, do that, right? You don't like, there's no law 
<laughs> that says you have to, you know, hit these these paces or these splits, right? Don't get sucked into that. Right? You have control over that, um, you know, within reason. I mean, it's not going to kill you. It's not the end of the world. It's not going to kill your athletic career to do some workouts that are probably a little bit too hard, right? If you back, I mean, people have been training too hard and nonetheless improving for a long time, right? So if you can manage your intensity outside of those workouts and then you can keep those workouts as relaxed as possible you're probably going to start feeling a lot better right and then anytime you're not under the thumb of the environment um, then focus on doing good aerobic training don't do workouts in that environment right find that look at finding that concept of lactate threshold right try to do maybe a little bit more running that's a little bit easier do some longer runs right you can change that right you're not like, you know, you have, that's an example of like finding space in an environment of limited autonomy. And if you have autonomy, you can do all of those same things. Um, and, but if you're going to be self-coached, which I think should ultimately be everybody's goal, um, even if you're self-coached, like you might still have a con- uh, somebody that you consult with um, about your ideas. And, uh, but like, ultimately your goal is to try to, I want to set my own workouts. Well, then the layer that you can add here right, is if you're picking the workouts, if you're picking the the training pattern in a more, um, you have to decide all of these things, right, because there's no structure imposed by a coach or by a team environment, um, then I would suggest that one simple thing you can do is self-evaluate. And one way you can do this is with uh, lactate by making sure that, you know, your workouts are at the consistent and the correct lactate level, as you're training over time, and then your velocity or your power at that lactate intense that lactate level um, should be increasing gradually over time, right? And then you can experiment with different workouts. And if you do, oh, I'm going to try doing this stuff, and then you see what happens. And if your power um, at that steady lactate level starts to increase over time, then you can say, okay, this training must be effective. And if it doesn't, then you can say, oh, this, something's not working, right? So then so assessing, right, learning how to assess, that's going to then drive you into changing your strategy, right? And that's what strategy is in large part is it's like recognizing, um, you know, what are the outputs of a process and then going back to and tinkering with the inputs and comparing that to other outputs, right? And you might get improvement from one way, and this is, I think, very true, that a lot of people improve uh, training at this relatively higher intensity paradigm. Um, And so then they say, why would I do this differently? Like, I'm getting better. Well, the goal in strategy is to find the most effective strategy, right? I mean, if if the uh, Nash equilibrium is the point at which you can't seek any greater competitive advantage, then, like, what you're seeking out is that... um, equilibrium right you're looking at the point at which i'm i can't get any faster acceleration of fitness over time than i'm currently getting um but you could also do this if you 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 know with heart rate you have to be a little bit more flexible with the heart rate value um but like you can say okay i'm going to try to stay within a 10 to 20 beat window of heart rate um to the best of my ability on all of these kinds of workouts and then over time, um, is my velocity against that uh, improving? And you can just put these into a spreadsheet, 
every day after you do one of those sessions and you can put it in a graph and say, okay, is the heart rate staying even and is the velocity or power increasing, right? You're, so you're validating and then what you're doing and then you try different things and you look at how that impacts the relationship and then that's thinking strategically. Um, and I think that's the biggest benefit of autonomy or space for self-selection and training is meaningfully identifying what's good for you to do. And then overtraining is a great example of this sort of um, self-regulation effect, I guess we might call it, because regardless of uh, where you are at, um, there's stuff that you can do to avoid overtraining, right? And when I say regardless of where you're at, that really means regardless of the degree of autonomy or the degree to which you lack autonomy, there's stuff that you can do to avoid or limit overtraining. You know, in hindsight, I know that when I was on um, in a team environment as an endurance athlete, that I very you know easily could have done things to regulate overtraining. I didn't have the knowledge of what those possibilities were, so that's what rendered that impossible. But now I better understand uh, the significance of that, right? Because it didn't occur to me, for example, that going um, slower would somehow be better, right? Because the whole framework is like being faster, people who work out faster have faster races. So you can be faster in your workouts. And then like every single space becomes a space in which you can be faster. And so then that shapes your mindset. So if we go and we take the concept of lactate threshold, um, we need to recognize that our selected training intensity is a result of our perception of value. So if we go back to a concept from earlier in this episode, right? We said that like if you look at um, elite runners, elite triathletes, and you look at what they're doing and how they say they're using lactate um, to evaluate or drive their training decisions, what's the value you assign to that versus uh, on this podcast, um, we're not trying to like maybe leverage um, sort of like a you know, um, list of personal bests or something, um, we're trying to like work through this, like in a method of thinking, right? We're trying to be methodologically driven and try to rationally break down, you know, what we think the evidence is and what we think that evidence points to and try to use that to inform our decisions. So our perception of what is more valuable, this sort of black cats run methodology of thinking and breaking things down, you know, trying to figure out how to analyze, reach conclusions, and then drive that into strategy. Do you value that? Do you value um, trying to emulate the people that you see as high achieving, right? So your value set around those things is going to, like, take that concept of lactate threshold and determine what we're going to do. Um, another concept related to value in a different sense is how do we ascribe value to training intensities, right? So, and there's a crossover because if you see these higher profile people in the sport culture, um, you know, doing training at these higher intensities, right? Then that's going to have an impact on how valuable you think that higher intensity is. You might say, well, clearly this black cat's run guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't have any world records to his name. He doesn't have any, you know, you know, world-class performances to his name. So he's saying not to train that hard, but these people over here, wow, they're, they're so good, and they train much harder than this guy's talking about. 
we're going to go in that direction. So if you value that, then one of the other values you're bringing into play is this idea that um, you value intensity scaling, where you think that as intensity scales, the val- a different kind of value, the output in terms of um, potential fitness increase, right? So the value of uh, the training session, right, is going to go up. So how do you interpret that value? So I don't think, and I, nor does the evidence seem to support that value, you know, scales in linear proportion uh, to increases in intensity. Um, if anything, I think it's you reach a point of diminishing return after you cross over lactate threshold, um, that you can still see improvements uh, in fitness, but you see progressively smaller and smaller um, or regressive yields in fitness return from that. And that's just like comparing one minute of lactate threshold intensity to one minute of some super lactate threshold intensity never mind the fact as has been discussed at length on other episodes never mind the fact that you can do significantly more minutes of lactate threshold than you can of super lactate threshold intensity so the order of magnitude by which the training value of intensities over lactate threshold needs to exceed the intensities of uh the, excuse me, the value of the lactate threshold or the sublactate threshold intensity is crazy, right? So um, we can also, another kind of value that's relevant here when we're trying, so these, so let's pause before we go into the third thing, right? So the first thing we said is like our value of um, how do we interpret like the sort of weight behind different ideas of how you should approach training, Right. So that can lead us to make decisions. And that decision isn't based on whether or not uh, we're overtraining, right? That decision is based on we're going to determine whether or not what we're doing is good based on how closely are we emulating this thing that we have um, abstractly constructed as being important or correct, okay? The second thing we said is that we might apply our concept of how um, important, quote-unquote, hard work is which a lot of people take to mean the harder it is to do something, the harder the work is to do that something. And at least like in American culture, this belief that hard work is rewarded or all things are possible if you work hard um, is maybe that's going to bias us to assume that, hey, I'm just increasing the potential value of my training by increasing my intensity. Okay, so then a third aspect of this, right, that can drive us towards overtraining um, is what do you value in terms of the amount of training? So I think overtraining um, specifically is oftentimes thought of or explained in terms of training too much, right? You know, and when people say training too, when people say train hard, it's good to train hard. They seem to mean like to train really fast or really intensively in a workout. But then when people say they're training too hard, they oftentimes, uh, at least, you know, this is from my perspective, oftentimes seems as if they're talking about people doing too much volume um, and that there's that overtraining is like a sin of uh, volume. And I think this has led to this belief that like if you have low volume, you can't overtrain. Right. And then if athletes are struggling with fatigue, well, you need to reduce the amount of training that they do. Uh, it's like the you know anecdote I've heard that uh, I don't you know, I think um, Rob Hoppler, the co- coach at UNH, supposedly 
you know, when athletes have been injured, you know, his strategy for them to return to training is they return to training with doing the workouts first, right? So the most high intensity form of training, right? So that's a value presumably that he has. Um, you know, if I was in that position, that'd be the last thing that I would do um, with those athletes. And I might, you know, want to never have those athletes do the kinds of specific workouts they were doing before. I mean, people usually aren't getting injured doing aerobic training over the summer, right? The injuries start happening when what is introduced, the high intensity is introduced. So why would you go back to the high intensity at all? Never mind this idea that, okay, not only are we going to go back to the high intensity, but we're going to start with the high intensity, which just totally goes against the principle of how you build into, you know, basic functional fitness to even be doing an activity in the first place. Um, but right, that I, I think reflects the idea that it's the volume of training. It's training all the time that is leading to overtraining. And I disagree. I think overtraining is a product of how intensive our training is on a scale, right, which can be from couch to collapse, right? So we're, we can just be sitting on the couch, right, um, lying down on the floor, <laughs> and that can be, right, maybe the lowest form of intensity, and then exerting ourselves to the point where we can't stay up anymore. I guess if you're swimming, the, the point where you drown um, in the shallow end, um, right, would be at the point of collapse, right? So, um, and then, of course, the other factor is how long can we do this, right? From no time to hypothetically an infinite amount of time. Of course, we don't live forever, nor can we really do that, right? But there's some people have tried to push the limits of um, how long people can exercise, right? You know, when you have three-week stage races on the bicycle, ultra-endurance events, ultra-marathons, stuff of that nature, right? So there's all these, but the combination of those, right? How and instantaneously, right, how much force or power are we doing? And then for how long are we doing that? And then that is what overtraining is a product of. It doesn't make sense to assess overtraining as being a product of just volume, because unless you have a context of how much volume that is, that's not bad, right? Like I'm alive for 24 hours every day, right? You know, and if I get tired, right, or I don't feel good, oh, am I over? Am I overtraining? No, you're alive too much, right? Like, okay, right. So the fact that volume or time has passed, that's not can't be causal, right? Because that that time is going to be passing, right? The question is what is happening in that time. The question then is further specifically, how intensive is that time being used in terms of training? So our interpretation, right, of the benefits of training is going to ultimately determine whether or not we identify things as overtraining, right? So you can take something that is overtraining, but because you see all of these voices saying this is the right lactate level, you're not going to recognize that as overtraining, right? You're going to maybe go to this other place and you're going to pick between what are the two inputs that you think have the most respect or credence, right? So if Black Cat's Run is saying you should do a lot of activity, and then the pro athlete YouTube channels are telling you, you should go out there and really purify your soul with these killer workouts, man. Um, you're, I think most of us, as I think it makes sense to a lot of us to say, okay, well, these people are have this greater status than this voice. So that thing that has less status must be the thing that's wrong. But when you look at it like that, um, and I'm not saying that to defend uh the Black Cats Run podcast, we all know 
all all people who listen to this podcast know that this is a radical world shaking podcast that has Xi Jinping shaking in his boots every time the Communist Party assembles in China, um, right? It's a huge deal, this podcast. So I understand, right, I, the need I have to uh, defend it, right? Um, defend its image in the public consciousness. No, right? But seriously, right? Like, that's what anybody would do, right? And so the problem is that kind of uh, those, those biases or those methods of establishing value are going to obfuscate our ability to identify when overtraining is happening. And I think this basically cultivates a context of blindness, right? That because we don't recognize certain things as having just as much a possibility to drive us to overtraining, we, in certain contexts, can't identify that overtraining is the issue. And yes, there are a list of symptoms of overtraining, and I'm not saying that those symptoms are invalid or you can't experience those from overtraining, but you can experience symptoms from a lot of different places. And a lot of the symptoms you can have from overtraining can be from other things. I hear people talk a lot about how, oh, well, you know, I'm training really hard, so like I'm probably going to get sick. I basically never get sick. And I can tell you that I, you know, just compared to the average amount of time that most people spend uh, training and the amount of rigor that, you know, most people put into this stuff, I'm well above the average marker on that point. And I don't experience sickness, nor do I know people uh, who get sick because of this, right? But like, if you have that bias that, you know, I'm feeling like blank, and I know athletes who will just like claim that they're sick and it's the strangest thing because it's like they're clearly not right but they just like they don't you know they don't either they don't really want to do something they're lacking motivation and they try to people or maybe they're just tired right and then we try if you're say you're tired right the coach tradition the traditional coach is going to immediately be triggered by that and be like i am going to motivate that athlete to not be tired Right. So I think people learn to sort of make claims that people can't like argue against. Well, I'm sick. I'm feeling sick. I'm definitely sick. Right. And then like it's like they don't go to the doctor. They don't really have any symptoms be, be, be beyond just like moaning about it and claim, making claims. Right. They won't take their temperature, do any of this stuff. Um, but maybe that's a product. It could be. In some, now in some cases, I think people just like don't want to wake up on the wrong side of the bed. And they're like, I hate exercise today, right? And instead of just saying, today I hate exercise, we kind of make up these social stories, um, you know, to sort of protect our, our ego um, within our sports culture spaces. Um, but it's also the case, right, that like these people getting quote unquote sick, like, you know, I'm not saying that some people don't get sick. Um, but I don't right. this idea is that, oh, it's caused by the training or whatever, or the training predisposes me to feeling like this. Well, is that true? Or is it like maybe the case that, um, you know, overtraining conditions of overtraining induce symptoms and maybe people are, and this is speculation, but maybe people are misidentifying those symptoms of overtraining and they're saying, well, I'm sick. And so then they don't do anything for a couple of days and then, oh, I'm not sick anymore. Right. Well, maybe you took some rest. Right. And so our perspective, right, could maybe prevent us from recognizing that, well, maybe it's not this thing that people get sick a lot. Maybe it's the thing that people like are overtraining to the point of fatigue. And then this is what this fatigue looks like. It's not an illness. Right. It's a state of like exhaustion. Right. 
Um, and exhaustion can be cognitive too, right? Exhaustion isn't only muscular. We can experience, if you've ever experienced that thing that people call brain fog, right? That's a kind of, of fatigue, right? And then changing the environment, reducing or changing the stimulus, right, can alleviate that sense of brain fog. So how essential all of these truths that may not be truths, how essentially true they are in our imagination is playing a huge role. And if we think something in training is absolutely needed, we're more likely to ignore whatever warning signs, right? So like if you're walking around uh, the next day after training and you like getting up and off of a chair, right? Never mind going up and down the stairs is a nightmare. I would consider that to be a sign of maybe overtraining. But a lot of people think that this is great and that it's like a necessary thing and that, oh, I pushed myself. This is awesome. I'm going to get a lot of improvement from that. Um, And I think for some of us, it might become very obvious that we're not getting any improvement at all. Um, I think for other people, they might already be, they might, their sort of baseline might be so close to the front of races that, and that the aggregate average level of that racing probably doesn't really increase from year to year. So you continue to basically be competitive. So it's like, well, I'm competitive, right? So my training must be good. And I think for those of us who are like, yeah, I'm not even like scratching, you know, at the lead group, you know, in this race, are more, we're more likely to maybe want to question and wonder if something is wrong, right? So the essential nature of that, right? If you're somebody who continues to be competitive, you're more likely to believe that the training you're doing is, well, this is why I'm here in the first place. And without this, I wouldn't even be here, right? Where for those of who are like, I'm not even in the group, so this is like pointless. Why am I doing this training that is miserable and unenjoyable in and of itself? It's not giving me any reward, right? But the paradigm of the coach might be that, well, I have these athletes who are, are in the group and they're doing the training and you're not in the group. So the problem can't be me, which is stupid because I feel like as a coach, like what's really cool is the fact that you can come up with good training ideas. So like there's an opportunity to come up with a different training idea, but I guess coaches like want to have like invented these workouts and then they need to like hang their hat on like proving that the workouts that they created the first year they ever coached are the right workouts to use for 50 years. You know, I mean, maybe that's a little bit of exaggeration, but there are people who coach these sports for half a century and they don't maybe change much, if anything, as they go along. Um, And my sort of interpretation, my anecdotal perspective on this is I think 90 to 95% of athletes um, by which I mean to sort of represent my belief that I think it's an overwhelming majority of athletes are, are overtrained. I've referred to my experience with bus ride syndrome before where I would get on the bus at Bates to go to a meet. I'd get off the bus. We'd go to warm up. My legs would be absolutely obliterated. And because I didn't have enough perspective at the time, I just assumed that riding the bus made my legs feel bad. And the vast majority of our meets required getting on the bus, right? So I had very little uh, opportunity to compare and contrast that. Um, Like our perspectives determine our ability to recognize what was going on. The reality is I was getting to Saturday and I was exhausted. I'm not saying I was going to, I'm not saying I missed opportunities to win all these races, but I was massively, massively underperforming because I was at absolute, you know, low tide in terms of my 
my energy, right? My fatigue was totally maxed out uh, by that point of the week, right? And then why would it sort of rebound? Well, because then the race, I basically couldn't really exert myself. So the race day ended up being not much activity. And then the next day I would be able to go out and run easier. And then Monday wouldn't be a workout. And then I would start to maybe feel a little better. And then it was back into the intensity, right? And in track, it was worse because it was, you know, race, Saturday, long run Sunday, which is, you know, still a demanding effort in in and of itself in a way, right? Um, just not maybe as like high intensity, not the same kind of muscular fatigue demand as doing faster workouts. Um, but then it was Monday workout, Wednesday workout, right? And I couldn't, you know, rec- so then you basically had two Thursday and Friday was maybe your window of opportunity. And I think in hindsight, I would have should have just done no exercise on those two days if possible. Um, but again, if you don't have that space in your mind to interpret this in a different way, then that interpretation just isn't going to happen. Um, and you know, I didn't recognize that, but I know now that I would rapidly get to the point of overtraining. And I don't think this is a minority of people who have this experience. You know, I think it's easy to take that and be like, well, I'm just like weak or deficient as an athlete. Um, I, I don't think that that's true, right? That idea of, I mean, that's sort of vanity to assume that you're so unique and special that only you have this singular experience. <laughs> it's far more likely that the things that you feel and experience are shared by other people, not literally every single other human being on the planet, but there's a strong group of people who, out there who probably have the same experience. Um, and I think that this overtraining thing, when we change our definition of where it can come from, and what it looks like, I think it's happening to the majority of us. And, um, you know, it's taken me a long time um, to recognize this in myself, but, you know, which is especially ironic because it's always been very obvious to me that I should, can and uh, should encourage other people to be balanced and moderate in their approach. Um, but, you know, I think that belief that like, well, there's this secret sauce that I need to apply, right? And then when we see, again, right, we see the people who are quote-unquote good doing these things that are quote-unquote hard, and then like we try to do them and they don't work for us or we can't execute them, it's very easy to conclude that, well, what I'm missing is the ability to do that thing. And that's probably not the interpretation. And that, you know, it's part of it is that your understanding of what that thing is that they're doing probably isn't even accurate to what they're doing. So if they double a whammy there of like in the first place what they're doing isn't necessarily particularly great in and of itself but then your ability to understand what they're doing probably isn't even that great either and um you know i think that data is a good goal here right trying to use data to track fatigue against progress like we talked about earlier right pick that constant variable and across your sessions over like a longer scale of time, not a week, but over the scale of months, are you seeing progress, right? Against that, very, it's very easy. And I know people who will get faster, but they're, um, you know, and it's one thing to be like, oh, I'm at, you know, a 10, you know, 10 beats higher in this workout, but I'm way faster. That's not a big deal, right? But if you're like, oh, my heart rate is 40 beats higher and I'm running faster, right? It's like, okay, you're not really, ultimately you're just getting to this, this concept of the ceiling that people worry about um, is, uh, is like that ceiling is a, 
an illusion of the fact that you only train so hard all the time, right? That's your only approach, right? And when you misidentify lactate threshold, you're going to just train into the ceiling, right? It's not a ceiling. It's a floor, guys, right? People are so worried about, you know, their maximum velocity and like, oh, well, what happens when I train into LT2? You can't, you shouldn't be worried about that and asking that question because LT2 doesn't exist, okay? It's the floor, you should be worried about. And that's why identifying that lactate threshold is so important, right? Because when you identify that correctly, I think that has also a big effect on our ability to avoid overtraining. Because when we can actually measure and see improvement, then like logically speaking, we probably are significantly less likely to be overtraining. A lot of people are overtraining and don't recognize that because their training is dogmatic, which means that they're not really looking for Am I improving? Am I improving against a control? Right? They're just looking for, oh, I did this workout faster. I did this workout faster. And that's so important that they're going to block out any other information, right? That's all just, you know, cognitive dissonance to them. And, you know, we want to get to the point where we're not assigning ourselves training loads or assigning training loads to people we coach um, based on, you know, socially constructed perspectives of what does and doesn't engender improvement, right? This like cultural notion of like hard work pays off. Um, And, you know, the simplest version of this would be like the no pain, no gain thing versus Arthur Lydiard's train, don't strain, you know, and and that's probably the most concise uh, sum up that you could really give for something like that, right? And if we can get to that level of understanding, which is a paradigm shift, frankly, for the vast majority of people, then we can experience improved outcomes. Um, you know, I- improvement over time should be measurable, okay? In particular, when you are trying to approach your training and you're trying to identify this lactate threshold, I think the real takeaway from the example of high-performing, you know, elite world-class athletes is I think it is emblematic of the fact that we cannot easily intuitively identify and recognize this intensity. That people are looking for the point of where am I starting to experience resistance? Okay. And that at that point you're over it and people are identifying that as it. Okay, and if we can change, if we can recalibrate that, that is when we're going to get out of this overtraining process. And then for most people, I think it's only when they have this contrasted experience and this contrasted result. It might even be something as simple as I run the same performance, I you know have the same time, I have the same threshold power. But my experience to getting to that point is just so much more relaxed, so much easier. That's the point at which I think we really can start to validate this concept that overtraining is just an endemic experience and it's not this idea of volume as the you know cardinal sin of overreaching. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, you know other people who would like this or other ideas we talk about here at Black Cats Run, please feel free to recommend the podcast to other people. We have an Instagram page at Black Cats Run. 
uh, check us out on there. And if you're interested, if you have any in these ideas, have any other questions that you want us to cover, explore on the podcast, or looking for some input or consulting related to your own training, you can feel free to send us a message there as well. We'll catch you next time.